Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Won't you, uh, if you've got a Bible, open it to chapter 3 of Paul's second letter to Timothy. And Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that now you will help us to be able to receive it as it is, as your word, and that it will be our guide, um, our constant help and companion, Lord, as you speak to us now through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you uh, have, um, well, various Bibles that have uh, summary captions at the top to tell you what it's about, lots of them will have something like trouble in the last times or something like that, in the last days. Maybe you've heard that phrase, the end times before. And this is something that Christians talk about a lot. And judging by my social media feeds, people are talking about it now more maybe than they have done even in the past. And people are asking questions like, is, is Bill Gates the Antichrist? Or is going cashless or having vaccine passports a sign that is going to lead to the mark of the beast or so on and so on. So yesterday I googled signs of the end times and one site says here are 12 unmistakable signs that you're in the end times. Another one will say here's 15. Another one will say here's 20 unmistakable signs that you're in the end times. 50 unmistakable signs that you're in the end times. 100 signs that you're in the end times. It's like as you're going down the pages more and more of these signs of the end times and it gets a bit complicated. People are looking about what's going to happen or what happened in Israel or in nature or in politics or up in the heavens. And it all gets, as I say, complicated, which for me, complicated often equals a bit worrying because it's just out of control. And, and, uh, and Jesus said that we should lift up our heads when we see these things happening rather than being downcast. Um, so if we want to discover and discern what are the signs of the times and what God is going to do. The best place to find that is not on Google, it's not on somebody's blog, it's in the Bible, the Bible itself. And right here in this letter and in this chapter that Paul sent a letter from prison to encourage Timothy, his son in the faith, he lists three signs, three signs and one thing to do. Three signs and one thing to do. It's not that complicated. So as I say, if you've got your Bible open at chapter three, you're going to see three signs here that are repeated, I believe, in various ways. In, in other parts of the Bible, in some ways, these like summary things, these three things, and uh, they're going to show that we're in the end times. And reading them, we're going to see, I think I'm going to look at them and kind of think, wow, we're seeing a lot of these things happening now. But remember, it was happening then too. Paul wasn't writing a letter to Timothy about what was going to happen in 2020 or 2021. Paul was writing to Timothy about the life that he was going through, the problems that he was facing. And yes, these things can have secondary applications to us. But first of all, we've got to try and understand the comfort that would have been received from Timothy when he first got that letter. So, scripturally, the last days started the day that Jesus ascended to heaven. The last days will end when he returns but what we have to watch out for mostly, it seems, and it seems, and this is here in this passage, to be ready for his return, is the increase of these things. Literally, Paul says here, these things going from bad to worse. So as you look at the world, that's the first sign. What society will be like in terms of morality, marked by three loves, 
the love of self, which is humanism, the love of money, which is materialism, and unbridled love of pleasure, which is hedonism. So let's have a look at these. Number one, the first sign is that the world gets worse and worse. That's the first sign that Timothy talks about. So that Paul talks about to Timothy, so that he will hold the line, defend the faith, fight for truth, as evil escalates and as society gets kind of darker and darker and morality goes lower and lower. So let me read it. But mark this, Paul says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. When do we, some of these things we kind of read, these things, that's not a sin. God has a different view on these things. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. Not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Terrible times, he says. The word for times there is not chronos, from which we get chronology. It's kairos. It means seasons. It means epochs. It means, uh, so these, these are like seasons that you go through in history. Terrible seasons. In fact, the word terrible there literally means dangerous or even savage. So he's talking about in history there will be savage seasons that God's people will go through, that the world will go through, and more and more as we come through the last days. Paul says, sign number one, watch out, because the world will not get better and better. It will not get brighter and brighter, because the problem is people. People will not just evolve and become into some wonderful new version of themselves. People are self-lovers, and all the other sins fall out of that self-obsession. The ultimate crime will be to bruise somebody's ego. The ultimate crime will be to to harm somebody's self-esteem by not affirming or liking their selfie. The world's ultimate goodness is self-fulfillment, whatever that means. The morality is you do you. But people end up loving themselves only. And as a result of that, they want more for me. So they love money. And they want more for me. And so they want more and more pleasure. They won't love what is good. They want to redefine what is good for themselves. And so they won't love God. As Isaiah said, they will call good evil and evil good. Selfishness is the disease and everything else on the list is symptomatic. So Paul, however, doesn't focus on the problems in the world, but the danger to the church, because these kind of people, he says, are not just in society. Their spirit and their teaching infiltrate the body of Christ like cancer cells, and they they multiply unchecked, and they spread insidiously, like cancer does, to destroy what is healthy and living. The church is meant to be in the world, but number two, the problem is the world is in the church and that means the salt has lost its savour and is therefore as Jesus said fit for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot sign number two the church is corrupted by liars 
having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Paul's describing here a religious-looking church going through the motions without God's power. And I submit to you that this is the danger for the vast majority of churches in the Western world right now. Notice, it denies not the power of God. It doesn't say God can't do anything. It denies the power of godliness. Denies the power of godliness, which as we've seen is the word that is most used through 1 and 2 Timothy to describe what God wants to see in the world and especially in the church. He wants godliness and godliness means holiness and holiness is miraculous. Holiness is a sign and a wonder. Holiness makes the church shine as a light in the world. It is an astonishing witness. John Wesley said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergy or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. But here, Paul is describing leaders in churches, then remember, and now, who say they belong to Christ, but they are fake preachers, they are false teachers, they are greedy, they are all about themselves, they're not about being shepherds to the people of God. He says they do wear masks, they're masquerading as servants while living for sin and condoning it or involving other people in it. That is the direct opposite of godliness. It says they don't even know the truth. They try and teach it, but they don't know it. In fact, they oppose it. Why? Because they are liars. He talks specifically, and this is shameful, about immoral religious men. Men who exploit their position of power to abuse, hurting, or vulnerable women it's sickening to god and even scandalous to the world when finally it becomes exposed but haven't we seen this more and more the stain on the church in recent decades from previously respected leaders who it was discovered have just been preying on other people especially preying on vulnerable women controlling them predators pretending to be pastors wolves in shepherd's clothing and some of these it still shocks us it still sickens us when it comes out I'll never forget when I first heard and read about Bill Hybels who I'd, I'd met and been at his house and, and and revered in many ways and I was like stunned when I read these revelations about the way in which he had abused women or Ravi Zacharias only heard him once came away from hearing him just thinking wow what an incredible holy man of God and then within months, 
you find out that incredible things have been allowed to happen. And that there's been no restraint put around that ministry to be able to protect people. And I'm ashamed that men are so often the common denominator when details emerge of hidden, heartless, secret sins from depraved minds. And God warns, it will happen. It will happen then. It can happen there and here and now and even in this city it can still happen but whenever it does the church must own up and never cover up because it will all come out in the end anyway as that fearful promise in verse 9 makes me tremble when I read it and want to put rules in life in my in my own life to guard me from my folly and according to numbers 32 that other verse that says be sure your sins will find you out. That's sign number two. Sign number three. You know you're in the end times when increasingly, he talks about this, true believers are persecuted. So two signs of the end times are that the world will get worse and worse and the evil lies and practices of the world will infiltrate and aim to take over from inside the church. I think those attacks on the inside are actually probably worse but maybe that's because I've not really suffered much the external pressures and persecutions that my brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters around the world so often have to have to go through as part of the package of saying yes to Jesus they get persecuted so true believers are persecuted he says this Paul says this look at the notes you however when you read it along follow this along as I'm reading it you however know all about my teaching my way of life my purpose faith patience love endurance persecutions sufferings what kind of things happened to me in Antioch Iconium and Lystra you know, he's talking about places where he was imprisoned where he was beaten where he was stoned the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Does that mean he didn't suffer? No. Being rescued doesn't mean there's no pain. The stones still hurt. In fact, everyone, say everyone. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted if we're not having any kind of persecution we do have to wonder am I living a godly life am I standing out or am I fitting in while imposters and evildoers will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived see they're not just deceiving others they themselves are deceived the people aren't the problem the people have got the problem being deceived do you want to live a godly life slow down before you answer do you want to live a godly life godly doesn't mean you look religious to the world it doesn't mean you write Christian on your Facebook godly life means God is number one and anything and everything else is not even a close second it's living for Jesus 
it's all in for Jesus. That's what godliness, and Paul describes what it looks like in his own life. He says, if you want to know what that looks like, I mean, I would hesitate to point to myself as an example of this. I'm glad I've got Paul saying, look at me, because this is what it looks like to live for Jesus. Being faithful, he says, to the one who is always faithful. In the next chapter we're going to look at next week, he says that when he was going through this stuff, he said, Jesus came and stood by my side and strengthened me when I was going through all those things. We never go through it alone. So whatever the world says, godly living means I'm going to do what God says. However hard it is, every day, every decision, we don't do what I think is the right thing to do. We do. You see, I can't trust myself to be the judge of what I think is the right thing to do. I'm not God. So instead... I pray and I read the Bible and I see and I discern what God says. And then I don't debate or talk myself out of obedience to it. I do it by his power, for his glory. I reject sin. I say yes to Jesus. It's simple, but it's not easy. That's a godly life. And a godly life, as he describes it, is full of purpose. Even though at times there's pain and persecution. So he says, listen, listen, if anybody tries to live like that in this fallen world, there will be times when life will be hard, when you will be persecuted, not promoted. You will be abused and not applauded. In this world, Jesus said, people will hate you. Not because of you, because of me, because you belong to me. While at the same time, spiritual frauds are cheered. And evil people prosper here as the world gets worse and worse and they fit right in with it. When you see that increasing, when you see these three things increasing, these are the signs of the end times. And I leave it to you to decide how close we are. A world getting darker, a compromised church going from bad to worse, while it's harder to live a godly life. Terrible times, savage seasons. Paul used to cry when he warned his people these times were going to come. And in my heart, as the leader of this church, I'm praying for us. I'm praying for you that God will take us through the times and the seasons that he brings us through. And the way that he does that, he hasn't left us without a way forward for doing that. Three signs. One thing to do. Whether as you look at the world and the word and you decide, yes, not only are we now, as it says itself, closer than when we first believed, but if you believe that this savage season that we've been going through is part of history drawing to a close towards the last of the last days before Christ returns. Whether you believe that or not, what do we do? Same thing, what do we do? How are we meant to live in a world where people love themselves but hate God? With a church that gets weaker because of its compromise, because some of its leaders are like those two sorcerers that Paul names who stood before Pharaoh's court and conjured up snakes as a counterfeit miracles to try and deceive other people, just as some false prophets will lead people astray with immoral teaching 
and unbiblical teaching and immoral example. While living for God is just going to get tougher. What do you do? Do we spend more time reading the five signs, the 10 signs, the 15 signs, the 20 signs, the 35 signs, and the 50 signs of the end times? Do we worry? Do we fret? Do we try and figure it all out ourselves where we're up to? Who's who? What's what? When's when? The answer then and now starts in verse 14. First of all, Paul says, keep calm. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You might not know everything, but if you know him, you're wise. All Scripture, say all Scripture, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First of all, Paul says, keep calm. Just continue in what you've believed, in what you believe. Stay steady, no matter What comes at you, no matter what everybody else is saying around you, all these other opinions, listen to what God says. That's what defeats the lies. Do what God says. Literally, this says, but you abide. Abide. That's that word continue. Jesus said, abide in me. He said, abide in my word. Just rest in him. When you open your Bible, take a breath before you do anything else and say, Lord, you're in control and this is your word and you're going to speak to me and I'm going to abide in your truth and in your word and you can rest in him. No matter what the newspapers say, no matter what Twitter and Facebook and everything else says, how much of that do we read compared with how much of this we read? When you rest in him, when I rest in him and realize he's in control, Psalm 37, 1 says, do not fret because of evildoers. I read that word and I need that word because I get angry when I see injustice and lies and corruption. You know, if you're my Facebook friend, you'll see there's times when I put stuff up there that is kind of like me going, ah! (laughs) But instead of reading more and more about the things that wind me up, I'd do a little bit better to read and pray into what gives me rest. God's Word, the Bible. He says here, this book is God-breathed. We can't live without it. This, is, this book is like, it's God-breathed and it's the breath of life to us. It's like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation that God gives us to fill us and to give us Life And when you read there that the book is inspired, you might think, oh, it's inspiring, like some poem or, or music or, or poetry or, or some other books might be. But no, the word here is like when the wind fills a sail and it blows the ship along. That's what this word is. It breathed by God. Theopneusis. It's, it's God coming and breathing into it. That's how it's inspired. So it was written by people who were inspired 
and moved by God. And the only way it's going to keep you strong in a world that is getting worse, a world that is promoting error, when following gets tougher, is if you regularly, I'm going to say daily, read it like that is true. Don't just read it. Read it regularly. Don't just read it regularly. Read it daily. Don't just read it like it's a book. Read it like it's God's word. Believe it like it's God's word, like it's true. Little thing I saw the other day that can help to be able to do this. Maybe you want to take a picture of it or something to help you because you can't think, well, I don't know. I don't even I read it. It doesn't really speak to me. Just read a few chapters or a little bit and then look out for a scripture or a verse that, that grabbed you. Write it out, a verse or two that spoke to you that day. That's the first thing. Observe who, what, why, when was God speaking? What's the context? Who was it speaking to then? Because that's important. You don't just grab a promise and take it for yourself. It might not be anything to do. You can understand it a lot more if you can spend a little bit of time figuring out, well, who was that spoken to in the first thing, in the first instance? Application is next. What is God saying to me today? And then pray God's word back to him. If it's a promise, claim it. If it's an instruction, say, Lord, help me to obey it. Pray God's word back to him. Just easy, a bit of soap to remember how to uh, read your Bible. Try it this week. I believe you can't read God's word consistently, regularly and prayerfully without becoming more joyful and less sinful. More happy, more holy no matter what is going on around us. Because when you read it, you'll see, our God is still working his purpose out. And when we read the end of the story, we find that he's already written it, and we win. So do you read the Bible? We read so many things in this information age. Distractions that stress us out. How do you read the Bible when you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible like it's the Word of God? See, this book gives us everything that we need to know about God, the universe, ourselves and everything, now and forever. Read it yourself. Read it with others, like in a grow group, and discuss it together with other people. Whatever else you read, keep calm and read the Bible because its truth will protect you against lies and liars. Its promises will build you up make you strong and confident and it will comfort you and it will instruct you and God will shout loudly to you through its pages or at times he'll whisper his promise to you. But when the world wants to distress you, God's word will de-stress you if you read it, believing this is God speaking to me and it's true and I'm going to abide in the truth of his word. We have to make a decision about this book and whether it's just the words of men or if it is what it claims to be. Because if it really is the word of God, it's not just there to be discussed and to be debated, it's there to be obeyed. And if it's the word of God, and I believe it is, then Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will remain. You might say, well, I've got my doubts. I say to you, doubt your doubts. And believe his word. And it will then equip you. It will equip you for life 
and death and everything in between, oops, and afterwards too. As he speaks to us and as we speak his word and bring that life, that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to a word, a world that is dying to hear it. Let's pray together. Just think about nations in the world where people would love to have a Bible. Love to have the freedom to be able to read it. Because they are being persecuted. They maybe survive on a few scraps of it. They've memorised. That's their life. It's the bread of life to them. Lord, we thank you for your God-breathed word. It's power to teach us, to rebuke us when we need it, to correct us. If there was one thing that I wish I could do in the hearts of everybody who's hearing or watching or listening right now, it would be that I would give them that love for your word that you want to give them so that we would be able to be anchored and steady and equipped for every good work that you've planned. Lord, I can't do that. But Lord, I pray for every heart. I pray that you would give us an increased hunger for your word and faith to believe it. to love you more and more as you give us our daily bread. Today and every day until the last day. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.